0: Welcome to the Deconstructing Data podcast and broadcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, fractional CMO at BDEX, along with BDEX's founder and CEO, David Finkelstein. Good to see you, David. How was your day today?
1: Hey, Jesse. Good to see you as well. Uh, My day was pretty good. How about you?
0: Not too bad. It's been going by really fast. I can't believe it's already 4.15. Yep. (laughs) At least Eastern time. Uh, Might be different times across the globe, but we have um, another awesome guest to welcome on to the show. So today on Deconstructing Data, we're thrilled to welcome Rico Dittrich, Project Lead and Privacy Ambassador. Bring him in here. Welcome to the show, Rico.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you all
1: yeah awesome we're happy to have you here on the show um and uh let's have you kick it off for us uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, what led you to become the project lead at uh 55 and tell us a little bit about 55 as well
2: yeah absolutely thank you uh i've been the i've been a project lead at 55 uh, us for about two years and two months now here based out of Houston, Texas. Our main offices are in New York City. And um, before that, I started my career at Google in 2015, worked there for a few years in the technical support and measurement and attribution space. And um, you know, through uh, many ways, I ended up at 55, part of the Brand Tech Group. What we do is we're a data consultancy. Um, if you wonder where the name 55 comes from, 55% of you, of people that walk into a physical store walk out with a purchase, and that's our motivation to get to that same percentage for the digital and the online experience. So we focus on marketing technology, cloud services, media consulting, and the customer experience. Uh, but with particular focus myself on digital experiences. Digital analytics particularly is one of my uh, strong points. And for about a year and a half, I would like to say I'm also a privacy ambassador for our U.S. office because 55 is a global company with our headquarters in Paris and each market is represented in the privacy ambassador community at our company uh, to discuss recent developments, all things privacy. Again, happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah,
1: that's awesome, Rico. And and I'll, there's a lot to discuss on the privacy side for sure. But I'm really curious. Before we even dive into the topics that we have, um, I the the whole concept and name of 55 is really interesting to me. I didn't know that. Um, I'm curious. You know. Where well, what what's it going to take for us to achieve that uh, in the
2: digital world? So many different things. great question. I think um, this podcast is very apt to accomplish that because data, of course, is highly important. I think we all remember the headline from one of the bigger magazines data is the new oil. And we need to be definitely focusing on collecting the right data and activating it to make sure that we get people to convert at the same rates as in the physical world. Uh, Besides that audiences, assets, attribution, there's so many pieces to it and all of them touch on data, I think. But at the same time, I think we do live in a new world and maybe we will never get to the exact 55%, you know, but uh, that'll that'll show itself in the coming years and decades. I would say this is definitely the long game and not a short term goal.
1: It's a good point. I think that most companies don't achieve 55% um, conversion on their, you know, on their websites, Um, and I think anybody would love to achieve that Um, Mm -hmm. for me. I think that that the you know, and we're gonna, I'll, I'll sort of segue into our first topic because I personally think the cookie deprecation kind of is getting in the way of that. I, I think that cookies were were especially third party cookies in some ways were, and and the data that we were able to tie to it was helping achieve uh, higher conversion results. And so now we're we're in this what dilemma, right? You know, what happens now uh, with cookie deprecation? So I'd love to get your take on that as well.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, David. I think marketing and analytics, many digital experiences have always been a little bit scattered. And uh, since the beginning of the internet, you know, companies and agencies and advertisers have been trying to make sense of it and stitch it together and make it a seamless experience for everyone involved. But you're absolutely right that uh, cookies were one of those tools that made it possible to stitch things together. And over the past few years, um, those are becoming less and less relevant for that purpose. I would like if, if you let me to talk a little bit about cookies and third party cookies, what they are, and then we can talk about what's happening right now. So I think we're all familiar with, with cookie banners and what cookies generally are. They're text files that are being dropped in your browser. And typically they contain a random alphanumeric value that uh, different platforms use for different purposes. For example, a first party cookie can be uh, used to persist your login. If you log into a website and uh, you uh, check the box of remember me or remember my login, that'll be relying on cookies most likely. And that's a super helpful feature of course for your user experience. Third-party cookies, on the other hand, um, are typically used for advertising purposes, like remarketing or to be able to identify you across different website visits that you do. And um, now you can easily see that a few organizations and changes out there have cracked down on advertising a little bit, at least to the extent and the depth that it's been going on. Um, I think the initial change that was big was uh, the General Data Protection Regulation and the European Union. It came into effect in 2018, but it was already passed in 2016. So Europe was really uh, ahead of the game a little bit. And then if you take into account other changes in the ecosystem, there was intelligent tracking prevention, ITP, which Apple instated in Safari. So if you use um, a Safari browser on any of your devices, since 2017, third-party cookies have not had the same functionality. And for the past few years, third-party cookies in Safari have already been dead. 2024 is really the year where Google is catching up and many of us are using the Chrome browser, be it on our computer, on our mobile devices, and so essentially because Chrome is currently the majority market share browser, that's why we say 2024 is the ultimate deadline for the third-party cookie. And Google's timeline currently means that in Q3, uh, we will see the third-party cookie to not be functional anymore, and we need to basically uh, find workarounds or new solutions to address this gap.
0: Will we, though, or will there be another delay? <laughs>
2: That's That's absolutely a valid question, I think. Mm -hmm. Google delayed it by at least two years on at least three or four different occasions, and we're Mm -hmm. by now used to delays on the Google end. To be honest with you, though, I think they're sticking to this now, especially because they have come up with some workarounds, like the Privacy Sandbox, If I don't know how familiar you are with that, and I think a lot of marketers have, have been seeing that Safari, Firefox, Edge, some of the other big browsers have been starting to kill third-party cookies way sooner, and I mm-hmm. think a further delay on Google's end would just not be reasonable.
0: Yeah. And the marketers who are questioning, like me, are going to be the ones who are left in the dust um, because, you know, we we keep seeing the delay. And now this is the year where it's actually going to get serious. So let's hope people are paying attention and they they actually start to plan accordingly. So yeah.
1: it, it, was, it was my understanding. I thought I read an article that said that uh, Google was already starting to uh, that they weren't going to sort of make it. Um, uh like a cliff and just drop all all third-party cookies that they were actually phasing it out and i think they said that in q1 it's going to be like or or even in january or february it was going by february it would be like 10 percent um and deprecated and they would kind of do it little by little um until it's all fully deprecated
2: oh that's absolutely right they yeah. started in january with the new chrome version with a one percent phase out and that phase out will uh uh, sorry, will uh, scale from 1% to 100% from January to, I think the current timeline is Q3. So somewhere between August and October, we should see all Chrome users that update their browsers to be without third-party cookies. And exactly those three quarters of timeline gives us the opportunity to test solutions to mitigate the impact a little bit.
1: I think I'm in that 1% because my I'm looking at it right now. My Chrome browser says relaunch to update and so I, I think uh, if I update it, my third-party cookies. Are Mine away. too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I haven't done it. <laughs> good to know. Make note of that. Um, anything else either of you would want to add on cookie deprecation and the marketer's dilemma? I mean, that's really good information to know that it's already you know phasing out. Um, so this is really serious. People do need to pay attention. So um, anything else you might help to prepare people before we go into the next topic?
2: I think um, what I started with earlier is really important. Always consult your legal team first. Uh, Third-party cookies being gone is a result of many different uh, changes in the ecosystem. I would say user behavior, legislation, technology, and making sure that your lawyers and you are aligned and on board of your approach to data collection is paramount and then you know everything else is second i feel even as a marketer as an analyst of course data is important to you good quality data is important to you and if you get that data in a compliant way that's always best and then I think next, I think that's going to segue in the next section to a certain extent, Um, first party data is super important, collecting that um, and uh, moving maybe into server side solutions to ensure that you don't rely on the third party cookies and that you make sure you rely on future proof solutions.
0: Yeah, well, let's get right into that. So that is the next topic, CDPs for first-party data mastery um, in particular. Could you just go ahead and um, start us off with this topic, Rico?
2: Yes, 100%. For those of you listening who are not familiar with CDPs, they're customer data platforms, meaning you collect and organize the data about your end consumers as an organization and uh, what you try to accomplish with a CDP typically is to ingest many different data sources, data points, and try to organize them in a way that they make sense within the CDP. And you also explore if you can use them for new and activating purposes, meaning you use the data in the CDP and activate it outside. So if you think of a chart, you have the data destination, you have the CDP, sorry, you have the data source, you have the data the CDP and you have the data destination and those are three important pieces and um, most importantly CDPs accomplish that you organize your first party data so basically you would not be relying on third party data which is a huge advantage in future proving your business.
0: Great point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for especially in, in this changing world um, that you know changing digital world that. Uh, everybody understands uh, how to leverage their first party data it's something we talk about here on the show a lot um, it's uh, uh something that uh, you know we try to coach our clients on a lot as well um, because of the impact that understanding your your own customer can have on your business as a whole um, but uh, and and obviously also the tools that we provide that help you leverage your first party data to find more customers that are just like your customers. But it's uh, you know it's uh, something that everybody needs to be aware of uh, going forward, because people are going to have to learn how to use their first party data a lot more, uh, given that there's going to be a lot less third party data available because of the the changes with respect to cookie deprecations.
0: Oh, great points. Yeah. Um so you know in terms of cdps for first-party data mastery since that's the topic how would you say people master their cdp Rico?
2: yeah that's a great question jesse i think primarily when you ingest data into your cdp you don't do it recklessly or mindlessly what you want to accomplish is a certain taxonomy such as naming conventions such as automation refresh rates you know building it on a uh, persistent uh, resilient infrastructure cloud platforms ideally you know that uh, flag to you when there's a quality issue and you streamline your data to bring it into a format that really not only means that you have clean accurate and high quality data in your cdp but that it's useful for further activation i think as i said earlier in terms of audiences in terms of modeling i think that's a topic that that we haven't discussed too much yet the better your data set the more likely you are to create models either to fill measurement gaps or even to predict you know something that especially e-commerce businesses appreciate is Based on existing user data and their behavioral data, such as conversion rates, average order value, and certain behavioral indicators that you can get from digital analytics as well as marketing data, is you can collate that data. You can model it and bring it into a prediction framework where you can predict high value segments, where you can predict churn rates, where you can purchase probability rates or repeat purchasers. I think if we think about loyalty, some products you need to buy over and over again, right? And if a business accomplishes targeting that user in a way, be it with an email campaign, be it with a remarketing campaign, those use cases can be really helpful to establish a very sustainable business model. And it's all based on on a CDP, right? So mastering CDPs really means organizing your data in a, in a relevant way for your business, uh, cleaning up your data sources, and um, building it on resilient infrastructure. So for example, if we think back of the third-party cookie deprecation and and make the connection here, building it on first-party input, of course, but also building it on server-side connections. So server-to-server solutions like conversion APIs that we know from Meta, TikTok, Pinterest, Google Ads, many different vendors out there are available today. So you can connect your data to the vendor's uh, server, and you would jump any relying on cookies or third-party uh, conundrum to make sure that your data stays clean and gets to where it's supposed to be. That's... Yeah,
1: it's a good point, and I think that there's one other thing that that um, that people need to think about also, which is uh, the collection of, of this first-party data, um, because, you know, what we're finding and we've had this conversation a few times is about the importance of the uh, value exchange essentially you know you need to be able to collect data about your customers not just the data that what they purchased or anything like that but sometimes polling your customers and, and asking them questions that will help you improve your relationship with the customer um, but often sometimes it requires you know having some sort of value exchange, you know, and everybody doesn't always want to give up information, but uh, anyone's willing to give up information in exchange for a discount off of something, right. So if you're able to offer somebody a discount off of something in exchange for learning something about um, you know you know what products are interested or, or or even just you know interest you know their interests in in different types of things, whether it be sports or activities or your lifestyle, whatever it is, all these things that you can be polling your your customers about could be you know obviously data that goes into your cdp and allows you to retarget to them and and, and segment to them that will, uh, you know ultimately enable you to improve you know your your uh, conversion rates with them as well
2: yeah i couldn't agree more i think a concept that's been recently established is this idea of zero party data where the end user proactively or in an encouraged way provides their data, right. Um, On top of uh, us learning um, about the customer for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Definitely. Now this is all really great stuff. Thank you both for sharing. And I I think that gives the listeners a lot to think about. Um, So with both what David was saying earlier and what, what Rico, you were saying in terms of just like all the integrations too, that you can consider with your CDP, you know, it's, you have to have your data talk to each other, flow seamlessly. Um, And with all that, you want to make sure that you're doing it, you know, in privacy compliant ways, but also, you know, then that brings up a lot of different questions with AI and the impact there. So just kind of transitioning us a little bit into privacy regulations and gen AI impact. Um, What were you thinking with this topic, Rico?
2: Yeah, this is, I think one of the least explored and most exciting areas that we are living through you know many people are saying many things about what ai and gen ai specifically can do for us basically describing it as a new technological or industrial revolution i think we'll we'll have to see what lasting impact it'll it'll have because if i could compare it to voice activation that 5 to 7 years ago was huge you know we probably all have a device standing, a or many devices standing in our home. If we just use the hot word, um, it'll help us. And, you know, a lot of the big players out there were hoping that this would be the future that everything would be voice activated. And um, Google just recently announced they will actually slash a few features from their assistant um, in terms of a feature set. So i just want to make sure everybody can clearly see the benefits and they they gauge them i think the next the next logical deduction that i would come into with with uh, artificial intelligence and especially generative artificial intelligence is again the privacy piece consult your legal team, right? Every organization has a different POV. Um, and the, the, the regulation, especially when it comes to privacy, is very much open to interpretation. Uh, we can still see that in California and in many other states in the US, um, as privacy regulation is being passed and coming into effect there is a few things up in the air. And and before the first organizations get taken to court or getting fined, it is up to interpretation. So make sure you consult them. When it comes to um, the impact, on of privacy and Gen AI, that's where it gets really interesting because Gen AI claims to create new content based on existing data, right? And that's inherently a really new concept because where do we draw the line? I think we've all seen pieces of Gen AI or the output of it. And we can see similarities with existing intellectual property, or we can see clearly something is off. Examples that I have in mind right now is the Pope in a Gucci coat, or uh, some creators out there were creating songs with Bad Bunny's voice. And all of those had different reactions, very strong, but mixed reactions, right? Some people welcomed it very strongly and they, they found it entertaining, they found it exciting. Other people were strongly against it and they denounced it. I think the first step that many people would agree on is that we need to label our content very clearly if it was designed by a human being or by a machine. I think if we think back about the summer of 2023, we had some strikes in the entertainment industry in the US and the one of the strike demands was also to make sure AI is either clearly labeled or it doesn't get as big a role in creating content as, you know, some uh, producers or studios were foreseeing it. So it's such an interesting, wide and exciting field and so many aspects to it. But I just wanted to start it off somewhere.
0: No, oh, that was good.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, I and mean, my my daughter is actually in the in the film um, industry, or she's working her way into getting it into it. Um, and she, uh, well, her and I went on to I don't know remember what it was. It was being a ChatGPT one day, and and asked it to write a script for a film. And and sure enough, you know, I, we described what we what what the film was, you know, short story, short film, whatever. We described what it was, and and it wrote the script. And and it's really interesting. We, but at the same time, we don't know where all that content came from, you know, did some of it, you know, come from pieces of, of other other works. And that's sort of, I think that's, a, you know, in some part, what uh, some of the fear is from, you know, the writers, um, you know, that were on strike is that they don't want to re- be replaced by AI in a sense to where, where, you know, it's not, it couldn't, it could be unoriginal content, you know, even though it's created an original script, it's it could be created from Pieces of works that are you know already out there in the world, so uh, it's really interesting to see where it get, where it will go. Um, but but I have to say you know there are a lot of really interesting things on the AI side that are happening. There, I just actually ordered something. Um, I don't know if you saw this company announced at CES this week uh, called uh, the company's called Rabbit Tech or something like that, and they came out with the R1 Rabbit and it's like this little device and you basically you just talk to it and you tell it what you want to do. And it, it, I guess it syncs up with your phone so it can, it can, can do anything that your phone can do. So you can basically just talk to it and say, Hey, get, get me an Uber, um, you know, from here to there. And it does the whole thing there. And it it comes back and says, okay, your Uber's on its way. Um, you know, you can basically teach it uh, as well. So, this is kind of the thing that intrigued me is like you can do a task on your computer and basically teach it so it'll it'll basically you program it to watch what you're doing and do that task and then next time you want that task done again you can just say you know hey rabbit uh, can you do that task you name the task and just say hey can you do it so it can literally go into spreadsheets and and you, know, you move things around and, and recalculate things or whatever, add columns. And, and basically if they're tasks that you do on a regular basis, you can just tell it to do it. That's once you teach it wow. how to do it. So it's, it's kind of neat. So that I think, you know, from an AI perspective, from a voice perspective, I think that uh, it's really interesting to see how these things are coming together. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that the, the future is gonna be, you know, just filled with all kinds of different, you know, unique ways to, to use both voice and ai um in uh, in ways we just haven't even thought of yet and they're still being created what i really liked about this thing is is that you can teach it so you basically can teach it to do, it, do it. anything you can do that's sort of a repetitive task you know, you can teach it to do and and then just tell it to do it
0: wow of <laughs> course someone has that at ces this year yeah <laughs>
1: Not out yet. It, yeah. I pre- I pre-ordered it, and and this is the crazy thing. It was only it's only like two hundred bucks.
0: Oh wow!
1: And there's no. And I was just. I was really the one thing that really surprised me is there's no subscription to it, even though you're constantly using it and it's constantly having to go into the cloud to you know obviously to do process and and do the work. Uh, I was surprised they didn't have some sort of subscription tied to it maybe that's hmm. maybe, maybe that'll be the hook once once they sell a million units or something
0: <laughs> yeah like to come it could be yeah. like you know your hotspot your phone and everything in one yeah and your doer but that unless, is so interesting
2: unless the value exchange is in you know uh, your data being anonymized and used for future training purposes yeah, which maybe. i think is what a lot of the big players are doing, you know, um, obviously in a compliant, uh, anonymized way, using data to train their models, and then personalize them for each individual based on their input. As you said, they're capable of learning. Oftentimes, I think we've seen a lot of the news where people chat with the different bots out there. And over the course of 10, 20, 30 messages, they're able to uh, develop a sense of empathy, compassion, and you can almost, uh, you know, feel the emotion through the screen, which is kind of funky if you think about it. But at the same time, you know, then I think about the other use cases of AI where it's really um, not dull but very straightforward. To how can we optimize ad rotation or bid optimization and the assets that we use in our marketing campaigns every day and you know all of these use cases i think will materialize more and more over the coming years and uh, hopefully mature to the extent that we can incorporate them in our daily lives and um, they can take off some of the burden and load from our shoulders that are manual repetitive things and uh, you know we can focus on value adding activities as human beings what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah i I totally agree. That, that's something that I believe, you know, wholeheartedly. And I think the future of uh, ad targeting is all based on AI, and it, it literally will be able to just learn what people are interested in based on, you know, your, you know, your activities and and whatever. But even just running an ad campaign and then you know looking at you know who's looking at it, who's you know who's converting with it. Um, where are those people? And so, a lot of that thing could, a lot of that can be because of a lot of outside factors that you're not even thinking about. You know, what's the weather out right now? And so, all of a sudden, you see that you know certain products are selling more, you know, in different geographic areas at different times because it's raining there, or because it's snowing there, or or you know because it's sunny, um, because it's different times of the day, because there's something politically going on. Like, there's so many sort of other outside factors that data can be brought into the, you know, platforms in order to, you know, really truly analyze, you know, why are things, why are certain ads converting at different times in different places?
0: Yeah, that's yeah.
2: And if yeah. you don't mind me adding uh, in terms of, you know, the data that's collected, the data that's being used one interesting example that I observed was in April last year in 2023 Italy actually banned chat GPT for about a month uh I don't know if you saw that too and I thought it was a very interesting move because the government obviously decided that um, chat GPT was moving so fast and they needed to take a closer look at the inner workings of the tool and what the, that company was doing there and up to uh, before they could make a informed judgment call of whether that should be available to the general public and I think at that point it wasn't even available to the general public you needed an invite and you needed to get through like an early uh, availability process but I think it's very clearly showcases that you know if there's no clear legislation out there, and I think besides China and maybe some uh, smaller jurisdictions, there's no clear legal uh, guideposts out there for artificial intelligence. The European Union just started drafting the EU AI Pact uh, recently, and you know uh, democratic processes take their time, so it might be a few years until we see that actually take effect. And I think that's always important to keep in mind, even if there's no clear guidelines out there, um, You know, depending on the industry and the type of data that you work with, um, make sure that you use it for purpose-driven work, that it's relevant data, and that you don't get too intrusive in collecting and applying the data.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, that the industry is evolving so fast, it's evolving faster than, any political you know environment can can keep up with and so they're they're constantly going to be trying to catch up to it because you know this is an industry that that changes every every month you know not every three months six months or or years this is like you know there's new products new services new platforms updates you know we went you know we're on what gpt we're almost on five now right um so it's like (laughs) it's right. it's happening too fast. Uh, nobody can really keep up with it. And so you're right, at some point, there's going to be something that comes out. And that's, you know, could be questionable. But, you know, everyone's going to have to sort of try to catch up to how do we regulate this? And, and how do we deal with it?
0: Yeah, I want to say important... also,
2: go ahead, Jesse, sorry.
0: No, you go ahead.
2: Okay, I was gonna say, I think, Consumers have become more forgiving too when a brand makes a mis- mistake that if the brand genuinely and honestly, you know, recognizes the mistake and fixes it, be it a data breach, etc. I feel like we live in a reality of cyber uh, you know, the the cyber reality where everyone is connected, everything is online all the time, that those things can happen, but you need to try to mitigate them as much as possible and go out there and communicate transparently. So, you know, even uh, all of the benefits should always outweigh uh, the the negatives. And I think if an organization can clearly communicate that, I think we were talking about value exchange earlier. Um, I think we're all familiar with, you know, our our own uh internet reality sometimes uh we we notice that things don't always go exactly the way we want them to be but we can fix it uh, as much as possible and we can be honest and 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 um genuine about it and i think that's what people appreciate if a brand is relatable they'll stick to it and they'll be able to develop more of a loyalty with them
0: such a great point yes
1: yeah it's true but one of the things we really need to be careful about is fraudsters i mean we're already seeing evidence that AI is being used in in uh, phishing scams, and so it's it's going to be really scary if someone comes out with with you know some sort of scam that um, that is is does a really good job of uh, you know pretending to be you know either a real brand or or agent you know government agency for that matter or bank or something like that that takes a lot of people, and, and that's something we really need to be cognizant of because. Uh, the fraudsters have access to, you know, the same tools that everybody else has.
0: Definitely. I agree. Fraudsters. It's such a funny word, but, um, the only thing I was going to chime in and say earlier was I just thought your message was such an important one. I was glad you, you mentioned it that, you know, as long as we as marketers and advertisers can be stewards of our audience, and you know, build our reputation and do things the right way, we might be um, able to help guide things in the right way because there's a lot of change happening right now, even at the systemic level, like governments. So um, thank you for sharing that. I thought that was really great. Um, and we do have a little bit of time for some post-topic questions, but before we get into them, um, we'd love to hear about your tech stack, Rico. What are some of your favorite tools in your tech stack? This is something we ask um, everyone who comes on Deconstructing Data.
2: Thank you. I think that's a great question. Uh, I'll answer twofold. I'll answer for me individually. I think at work, productivity is super important. So I think my calendar is my number one tool in my everyday life. I use it for personal as well as for professional purposes. You know, take advantage of that private public setting, offer appointment slots when needed. And, um, it you know, if you integrate it with your Maps application, it'll tell you when to leave to be there for your flight or for your movie. It's so helpful. And I think productivity is really number one for me personally, and then when it comes to you know the tech stack that I'm thinking about for my clients, also in light of today's conversation, I think, of course, we talked about CDPs already, and I think those are super important to organize your data. Those are especially helpful for enterprises, uh, larger organizations that deal with a lot of data. But for every organization out there, be it small or medium sized, I think a server side solution and that can be a CDP or that can be a tag management system like, for example, Google Tag Manager, uh, they will enable data collection at a better quality with higher control, always respecting users' content choices as well as, you know, uh, overcoming reliance on third-party cookies. So those those two things I would probably uh, emphasize in my everyday tech stack.
0: That's good. Perfect. Absolutely, yep. We definitely hear about CDPs and tech stacks. So thank you for mentioning that. And um, in terms of the post-topic questions, Rico, if you could go back to when you first came into this industry what is the number one piece of advice you would give yourself
2: so this might be a little bit cliche but i think uh when i go to the examples it might make more sense so the the thing i thought about when um the first time i came into the industry and that still holds true today and back then it wasn't fully aware for me was if you see something, say something. And I mean that in the data way, if you see data being collected that uh, goes too broadly, you're collecting personally identifiable information, or you think access policies are too broad and you know members of a team have access to data sets that they shouldn't have, or governance processes are missing or not complete, Uh, Those are some things that I'm thinking about. If you see something, say something. And the same way, the most specific example I can give was in, I want to say late 20, sorry, no, it was 2017, when Apple announced Intelligent Tracking Prevention, the first iteration, the first ever iteration, where they restricted... A lifetime of third-party cookies from to like 30 days i think that was the first uh, iteration of itp i flagged it within my company that i was working at at the time and uh, it, very sh- immediately we put up a whole team and action plan uh, to mitigate the impact of uh, itp on our advertisers on our clients and Even some developer solutions as in actual software pieces and engineering output came out of that. And I think that taught me if you see something, say something. That can be something that you think should be improved something that can be changed uh, when it comes to data collection, um, you know, a, a proposal, and it, it doesn't have to be you that, you know, fleshes out the actual solution, but it can be you to flag it. It can be you to call it out and make sure that your organization is, you know, um, the best it can be the best version of itself.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's great. I really appreciate that. And it's, it's as a, as a, Founder and CEO, I mean, I'd, I really appreciate that in the sense that, you know, I would want my team to to bring to light any any, you know, anything that they felt was important to the business as well. So thank you for sharing that. That's perfect.
0: Absolutely. Great, great advice. And going off that, are there any lessons you've learned along the way from past jobs or this, you know, current position that you think everyone should know?
2: So I've thought about this for for a little bit. And I think um, for those who have worked in marketing at any given point in their career, I think we're all familiar with the funnel, the good old funnel, Uh, no matter what shape it takes, or what you call individual stages in the funnel, the concept has been persistent and, and I travel a lot. So I've thought about what's something that business what that makes su- successful businesses, right? Um, businesses go out of uh, business all the time because they're not successful. They don't set the right priority areas. And um, I don't wanna pretend or claim that I know the universal solution, but because I travel so much, I look at airlines. Airlines are notorious for have extremely low profit margins. Um, and they are very immediately affected by changes in the environment. For example, the pandemic or 9-11, you know, airlines had to scramble and immediately uh, find a workaround or a solution. And I feel like looking at uh, looking at that industry and combining it with marketing slash the funnel, the idea of the funnel, I feel like a, a good um, equation uh, could be like always focus on your clients Um, on, on the services or the products that you bring out into the world, focus on their quality, focus on the price point, and then focus on loyalty. Those are probably terms that are not traditionally associated with the funnel. But if your product's quality is right, at the right price point, and you generate some level of loyalty, uh, you will very likely be able to uh, build a sustainable business. Because you know, if you think about the airlines, there's airlines like legacy carriers that have higher prices, but they deliver higher quality too. And uh, customers are likely more loyal to them. So that equation works itself out. The math works. And then you have ultra low cost carriers. We're all familiar with them. Their price point is so low that they can almost ignore the quality and the uh, service um, pieces of this equation. And I think that way you can find your niche in the business or in the industry that you operate in and make sure that you have a sustainable business. I feel like that's something that I've learned over the time um, in my career.
0: That's great advice. Wouldn't you say so, David?
1: Yeah, that's great. If I said fact, uh, I was just looking back here to try to find the book because the I, the, I saw a presentation. and I forget uh, who it was, but it was a it was a professor at um, a, a professor at MIT um, that had had done a presentation on um, the fact that you have to pick two of three. You can't have um, quality price and service. You have to pick any two. And, and so like they, they had given examples of like, you know, Walmart, Walmart is, is not about service. You know, they're, they're more about price. Um, you know, but then you, you look at, you know, other companies like, you know, a really, you know, expensive company like Saks or something like that. I mean, you know, they're about, you know, service, you know, and so they can ignore price. They can have these really high prices, but they give you really good service and good quality. Um, and so that's, that plays right into that. And, and it's absolutely right. I mean, you, you really have to, you know, hone in on, on who your customer is. And and once you do that, you know, decide which, one, you know, which of those you're going to provide because it's really um, unlikely you'll be able to provide, you know, all three.
0: That's a really simple way and just brilliant way to think about that. Thanks for sharing, David. Uh Uh, And thank you, Rico. Um, In closing, Rico, would you like to let listeners know how they can find you and learn more about 55?
2: Yes, absolutely. So 55 is uh, best reached on the internet, 50-5.com where you can find out more about what we do as an organization, where our offices are in all continents of the world, almost, I would say, but definitely most time zones. And uh, you can find me by my full name, Rico Dittrich, on LinkedIn, of course. And uh, can I just say it was such a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Rico. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, appreciate you joining us today and I uh, hope we can do it again sometime.
0: Absolutely. Um, thank you. Thank you both, and thank you to the audience. And real quick, audience, we hope you can check out Bex's Omni IQ. I'll throw a QR code up on the screen for anyone watching on video but if you're listening on podcast just simply go to bdex.com and click the try for free button no credit card required and you can simply upload a CSV of your first party customer data and once you you know create your account and you upload your CSV you can get gender birth year, household income analytics, all, all on your data. So again, no credit card required. Let us know what you think if you get a chance to try it out. And we'd love to hear from you about the show too. Um, what do you think about the show? Are there any guests you would like to see on Deconstructing Data? If so, please reach us at info at Share your qualitative data with us so we can make it better for you. And thanks again, Rico. All Thank right. You. Bye, thank you.